Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest for me, J.D. Sampson of the band Le Tigre, of Men, of, of solo projects, of a yet-to-be-named new project that we talk about on this podcast. This is a, someone that I'm a huge fan of. This is like a, truly a cultural icon. And, uh, you know, so when I had no idea about their punk history until this episode, and this is a great one. I'm very excited, as you can tell. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can get me at Turned Out of Punk podcast at gmail.com you can also find me on various forms of social media at left for damien if you use facebook there's a facebook page run by my brother and show producer tristan abraham and it's turned out of punk facebook.com you know facebook.com slash turn out of punk you know but if you don't use facebook like myself you can find it also on tumblr turn out of punk.tumblr.com uh, if you would like to support the podcast, the best way of doing so is by telling all your friends about it, letting people know that you listen to this thing. And also, uh, if you're using it on a platform or listening to this thing on a platform, I should say, write a review, rate it, uh, do what you do. Uh, speaking of support, though, the fine folks at Vans came aboard this podcast a little while ago and said, we don't want you to lose money doing this thing anymore. Here you go. And uh, it's been awesome. Now I'm getting to do all these fun things, like go out to the House of Vans. There's a House of Vans coming up this weekend, uh, next weekend with Suicidal Tendencies. There's Pennywise. There's all sorts of amazing events happening all summer long at the House of Vans. Art shows and, uh, yeah, it's awesome. Like, it really is my ultimate fantasy getting to go to these things each and every time. And I'm getting ready to go to my first one in a couple weeks, you know, and so it's going to be awesome live turn out of punk episodes there. And yeah, the people at Vans are awesome. I, and I'm not just saying this because they let me do this podcast, but they really, you know, they really do believe in this thing and support it. And I got to send them love and thank you for doing that. Um, so thank you very much, Vans. I really do appreciate it. On to today's show. Today on the show, we have J.D. Sampson. I guess before I get into today's show, I should kind of explain why you're hearing the wonderful nature sounds out in the background. I'm at my aunt and uncle's house uh, just outside of Montreal right now, and uh, we're having a lot of fun here with the kids. You know, it's it's summertime. I got a little bit of a, a vacation off of work, so I came out here and kicked back, relaxed, but uh, I'm not going to leave you without a podcast. You know, this thing might be... a day late at this point because of the vacation and because of the drive yesterday, but I'm not going to leave you without a podcast. And not only that, I'm going to give you an incredible podcast with not only an, an amazing surprise guest that you'll hear about at the end of the show, but also with J.D. Sampson, a legit icon. J.D. Sampson, uh, I guess, was came to everyone's attention <laughs> through Le Tigre. Uh, but you know, once again, became a a icon of of queer culture, gay culture, LGBTQ two spirited culture, and really is someone that has gone on to have an amazing career and has become you know used that platform to start a lot of conversations and be involved in a lot of conversations, and you know like Zona has definitely put herself out there. I've been a massive fan of JD for a very long time. I've gotten to perform with her a couple times uh, over the years. Got to see her perform a couple times over the years as well. And always been fascinated about 
you know, where she came from and her story. And so to get today and sit down and talk to her was a big thrill for me. So I'm not going to blather on anymore. I just want to say thank you, Auntie Allison and Uncle Billy, for uh, letting me come here and relax. And I want you to kick back and relax and enjoy J.D. Sampson on Turned Out a Punk. Thank you, J.D., for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, it's as I was just telling you off air, I'm a huge fan. And actually, as I say this, my wife just texted me to make me tell you that I, she is also a huge fan. And <laughs> wants you to know that as well. Um, well, I am a fan of both of you. So oh, well, that's that? awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> that makes me feel uh, super positive when we uh, start this. But I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? That is such a good question. You know, I think the first time I came across the genre was with the band Tribe 8. Mm -hmm. um, I basically uh, started listening to music through my queerness, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. I would go to the bookstore and look in Out Magazine and The Advocate and The Lesbian Connection, which was this really old school kind of pamphlet for lesbians. Um see what musicians I felt like I could relate to kind of went, bought their CDs and that was who I liked. Um, and I remember reading an article about Tribate and Team Dresh was also included as well and kind of like buying those records and becoming obsessed with them. Were, from there, did you kind of get in any of the zines like Outpunk and any of that kind of stuff that was happening at the same time? I did, but the problem was I grew up in Ohio, in Cleveland, and maybe there were kids who also were interested in the same music and scene, but I wasn't really privy to knowing where that hangout was. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> so um, I didn't, I was not, I did not know about the zine until I got to college, Um and when I was 18, then I kind of made friends who had lived in other cities like Chicago and New York um, and Boston and et cetera, where, and then kind of dug in more then. Tribe 8 are such a, like an incredible band. And, you know, it's funny because like I just had uh, Chris from um, – uh, from Pansy Division on the show a couple of weeks ago. They were my, they were like the next step for me. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, go on then. <laughs> no, I just, I was about to actually say that when, when you asked about the um, zines, because for me, somehow a tribate show led me to Pansy Division. I think they maybe played together. I don't remember, but mm -hmm. um, I definitely got super into them. Um, and then from there, I kind of went more towards straight people dead milkman, mm. et cetera. So, yeah. Well, so you mentioned you, did you go and see tribe eight live? Oh yeah. Uh, what was actually, what was yeah. your first show? It doesn't even have to be punk, but first concert you went to. Oh, that's terrible. The first concert I went to was with my sister and my dad and it was Chicago. <laughs> so um, they could get way worse. That's not, that it was super triggering, but, um, <laughs> a few years later I went to, um, see Guns N' Roses on the Appetite for Destruction tour. And I feel like... That's incredible. Um, That's, yeah. You must have been super young. I was. I think I was 12 or something. And it was the first time I saw someone like high on drugs. And I remember <laughs> like looking into her eyes and thinking, this is something that scares me. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's it's terrifying when you go to those first rock concerts. I remember the first time I smelled marijuana. Now I love the smell. Yeah. But yeah. the first time I it was like this is scary and weird. <laughs> right, right. Um where what was the first punk show you went to? Was it the Tribe 8 show? You know, I can't I think actually the first punk show I went to was like a battle of the bands. Yeah. Um of my friend's band the Smurfs, which was probably like not the more famous version of, you know? (laughs) Um, And they, he actually played a didgeridoo into a bucket. um, (laughs) In the Smurfs? With this punk band. Yeah. And they were like, it was a battle of the bands at this place called Peabody's in Cleveland. Oh, I've been to Peabody's. Um, Definitely. Yeah. This was Peabody's down under. So like it used to, they used to be different, but uh, it was like definitely a punk venue. Yeah. And then to be honest, I got kind of into ska. Okay. Um, so I I think just being friends with the freaks and for some reason, you know, that, uh, the anti-racist skinheads were big in my town in within the freak society. <laughs> um, so I did go to a lot of ska shows, like even local bands. Um, and that was really where, my, I don't know, my formative years of like show going were with local bands um, who nobody knows about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's sometimes the best um, stuff, right? I did see God is my co-pilot. Um, oh, awesome. At the grog shop. Um, I saw, you know, Ani DeFranco, people like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, but I remember, it's it's actually a funny story. I remember being in my friend's uh, driveway and the rest of my friends were like, we're going to see Bikini Kill. Do you want to go? And me being like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then I did, like, you know, 15 years later, I was in a band with her. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's funny. I, I skipped, like, that whole moment <laughs> because I didn't go to that one show, you know? <laughs> well, you know, then, you, you know, like, it starts off on an equal terms. You know, you're not, like, a fan joining a band. Yeah, just like totally. a co-musician. Yeah, people ask me that all the time. So, like, what was it like to be in a band with Kathleen? And I was like, well, to be honest, like, I didn't, I wasn't a huge fan. Yeah. So, um, it was great. <laughs> yeah. It seems, it seems like the stuff you're mentioning, like, it's kind of on the quirkier side, like especially the Dead Milkmen and like ska yeah, stuff. It's like totally more, and more kind of like I, I don't know, musically driven at times too. Yeah, I mean, I would say that. Definitely what's in my heart and soul is funk, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I love horns. I love melody. Yeah. So that was like where definitely my focus and content, to be honest. Um, content has driven most of my interest in music and and um, what I do with music, too. Mm-hmm. But um, I love something you can dance to for mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. When, when you mentioned, you know, going to the Chicago show, did you grow up in a, a, a musical household? Like were your parents into music and your sister? No, not at all. Okay. Um, basically I, my sister played the flute okay. and my parents hated it because they could not stand 
that she was not good at it. So she was three years older than me. And when it came time for me to like choose an instrument and be in the band at school, Mm -hmm. I wanted to play either the saxophone or the drums. And they, they said, no. Really? So could, could you just like not be in the band? Yeah, it was, it was just a, it was an extracurricular activity. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't in the band and I never learned how to play an instrument. Oh, wow. That's horrible. So when did you kind of get, cause you obviously you're very musical. Like when did you kind of yeah. find, you know, the, the outlet to kind of start playing music? When I was about 14 or 15, my dad gave me a classical guitar okay. and I took lessons and, um, that's where I learned music theory and, you know, some basics about playing the guitar. And I think from there it kind of led me into a direction of like making sound for, for film because I was actually my medium that I was focused in when I went to college was film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to college, I kind of like found this group of kids that, you know, was into punk and I started putting on shows. So I became like the punk promoter in town. <laughs> oh, really? What, were, what was the first yeah. thing you put on? Or what, one of the shows? Uh, of the shows. I mean, I booked a Racerata. Oh, awesome. Um, Tracy and the Plastics, you know, whatever. Latigra yeah. actually played. Um, yeah, so that was the need. Mm-hmm. Um, Cold, Cold Hearts, I think. Uh, yeah, so there was just like, I, I booked a bunch of bands that were like within the same community, uh, kind of like a queer riot girl slant or something, um, at my college. And that is how I ended up meeting, uh, everybody within that feminist punk scene and eventually meeting Kathleen and Joe and Sadie and them inviting me, uh, on tour as a projectionist because I was, I was a film student Mm -hmm. and um so then we were on tour for about a week and kathleen was like um all right well will you be in the band (laughs) (laughs) and and so i guess i said yes i said yes without saying yes to be honest it Mm -hmm. just kind of happened and um that's that's how i became a musician (laughs) <laughs> but, but you must have already you were because like that's after the EP came out that you did vocals on, right? Yeah. Well, no, I, that was before the EP. Oh, that's before the I EP. did vocals on. Yeah, yeah. I was in the band when that EP came out, um, but I did not write the songs. Okay. Because it was it, I was there for recording. Basically. Yeah, yeah. They had previously written the songs. Yeah. Yeah. Going back, how did you kind of first become interested in in film? Um, my. It's so strange, but uh, I had always wanted to be involved in film. I think I had some, you know, my my aunt who was a lesbian was kind of my idol, mm. and she wasn't much older than me, and she was a filmmaker, and I definitely wanted to make films um, with more of an art context. I was always conceptual with my work, um, whether that just be like sketching things or doing projects within the art. Um, class at my school Mm -hmm. and I was I was like the person that stayed up till four in the morning drawing and conceptualizing like projects Mm -hmm. Um, and 
So I wanted to use film in that way. And uh, there was a woman named Jennifer Reeves that came to um, Cleveland to show some of her films uh, at kind of like the experimental art house there. And I went to see her and it was the first time I felt like, oh, you can paint with film, you know? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I chose a college in which I could do that um, most easily and that gave me the most financial aid <laughs> and um i went to sarah lawrence and studied with some incredible experimental filmmakers and really challenged projection and challenged um kind of the boundaries of film itself and yeah that must be like you know obviously all arts change but just as terms of technology like the way film has changed in the last 10 years must be staggering well yeah i mean hugely uh we didn't learn how to edit digitally yeah and it didn't exist and if it did exist it was for like you know a very huge budget film you know mm -hmm. so so we did learn how to edit by hand and to be honest that was what i enjoyed about it the rhythm of doing that the silence the space the darkness you know like all this like it was so tangible for me and as soon as that started to change i kind of knew that it wasn't Either I was going to take film and and put it on the wall or take film and put it into a song or, uh, you know, something other than putting it through a projector, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, like, yeah, that's the thing is technology, it's just such a, you know, a huge part of our life. But, like, it's only when you think about how... I don't know, just how quickly those shifts come in, in terms of mm -hmm. art, you know? And like, I remember cause I worked in a video store and so that's, yeah. that's like, you know, experimental film compilations and, and like mm -hmm. watching these, these tapes that Kino video would put out like yep. that, that, you know, that's, I wanted to do that stuff too. Of course, I'd never had the skill that you had to, do, to wind up doing it, but, uh, it, it's now it's like gone. It's like almost like a forgotten part of art. Yeah, I mean, I think some people are bringing it back, those, like, retro heads. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I saw a guy the other day doing live film for a performance where he had these 60-millimeter loops, and he they were, like, a woman putting their arms up and down or whatever. And he just, like, was had two projectors set up and just kept, like, switching out the loops. And um, it was, like, so incredible. It made me so happy to see somebody taking the time and effort to do that. And it looked so beautiful. And so there's some people out there that are continuing uh, with the history. But uh, for sure, it's definitely what, you know, that change kept me from focusing more in that direction, I would say. Mm -hmm. But also the fact that I was being... Basic. I was in the band before I left college, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, going back to the history, um, when yeah. you got, cause you've gotten into punk through kind of a different way than a lot of kids around our age got into it because like, you mm -hmm. know, that was around the time of the mainstream ofification of punk rock. Yeah. How, how did that fit into your life or did it fit into your life at all? Like when that stuff started happening? I mean, which time? Like, I mean, like, the, <laughs> <laughs> I guess like starting with Nirvana, but more like yeah. the kind of, you know, Pansy Division went on tour with Green Day. Like that was my introduction yeah. to them. Um, but like when that kind of happened again, a little bit, I guess, three years later, two years later. I have been so, if, if I have been anything in my life, it has been anti-establishment yeah. the whole way. Yeah. Um, and when Nirvana became popular, I 
cross them off the list. <laughs> you know, when Pearl Jam got popular, I crossed them off the list. It was like, I don't care how good you are. I'd rather go see this band that is going to make $25 tonight and sucks. You know, mm-hmm. there's just something about wanting to support the little guy. And um, I just hated the mainstream. And yeah. I think that that part of that was just about being queer and coming out in a town where it was hard to do that. It was just like, you straight rich people like Nirvana. That's not me, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So I uh, definitely, I kind of shunned the mainstreaming of it for sure Mm -hmm. for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Given the fact that you're into like, you know, some more obscure stuff team. Well, like, you know, for yes, uh, like, did you have other kids around you in high school that were into this stuff? Like you mentioned not being able to find kind of the scene, but were there other kids in your peer group that got into it too? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Like in Cleveland, I would say, or at least on the East side, there's like 10 schools, you know, and some of them are private schools and some of them are public schools. And most of the like freaks hung out together from all the schools. (laughs) And we, we used to go to the park and we used to go to Dunkin' Donuts and the people that hung out in these two spaces were mostly either anti-racist skinheads, hippies, goth kids, punks, and, you know, I don't know. That's pretty much it. Yeah. And uh, we, if it rained, we sat in people's cars, you know. <laughs> if it, we went swimming, we went to shows, we, you know, smoked cigarettes and made out, you know. It yeah. was like, that was the thing. So, you know, I made some friends from other schools um, that were into different kinds of music. I, I, I definitely, you know, met a bunch of like riot girls from this one school that was like a bigger school, kind of in a cooler area. Um, but I would say that all of us had like a pretty basic knowledge. Um, it was like bikini kill exists and goes (laughs) on tour with other bands. Um, (laughs) and then there was, uh, this store called chain link addiction Mm -hmm. that I used to go to. And then this store record revolution, which was kind of like the punk record store. And the guy that worked there, um, was this awesome, really knowledgeable guy. No idea what his name is. Um, but we used to meet up and he would tell me the history of ska, um, on the steps, like in the common area. And it was just like that, that was where my knowledge came from. You know, it was just like other people. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much how it started for me. Yeah. You kind of had to do it then too, because there's obviously access to internet, you know, it existed, but you know, it wasn't like there was discographies of bands on there yet. Yeah. And I mean, my family in particular didn't have a computer ever, Mm -hmm. you know, like my, I, I didn't get a computer until I left college. So I didn't have message boards like other people did. And I, I really had, what I had was a a newspaper that said what bands were playing. And I had a record store that said this record came out, but you couldn't listen to it. So you just had to buy it if, if the cover looked good. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely, and you, and you had to rely on like an oral tradition of knowledge, yeah, too. exactly. And you know, that's definitely where Dead Milkman came from. Uh, you know, friends going to the show, and uh, yeah, you did mention some local bands that you said no one would have heard of, but what were some of the local bands that you were into? Ugh, 
ska bands. There was like one called Mustard Plug. Oh yeah, I, I was gonna say yeah. what's Mustard Plug. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I liked the Toasters, but it was always a weird lineup, and um, you know that that was the funny thing was like people would come through with like a totally different lineup yeah. than what's on the record, and you're like, what is this shit? <laughs> yeah, who are these guys? Um, yeah, then there was this awesome band that I like still get their song cut in my head all the time. And I used to go see them all the time and it was a name and I can't remember it. And I'm sorry. <laughs> no it was problem. like it was like the the Tommies or something like that, but I can't remember. Did they put out records and stuff? Um Yeah. I mean I think they had one record. I looked for it like a couple of years ago. Okay, well, um, we have a very, uh, uh, you know, loyal, nerdy listenership that is able to dig up weird, obscure things. So hopefully from this bits of evidence, we'll be able to find that band okay, for you so you cool. can get that CD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't even, it's like I had so many CDs because I just bought them. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be like, oh, this sucks. Okay, whatever. You know, I really, I was into Skunk Anansi. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I think Henry Rollins produced that first album, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I I was into Henry Rollins. I went to that show. I did you ever like a band called Die Cheerleader? Do you remember that no. band? No. Okay, that was another um, band he produced back then, but that was a big favorite of mine. Yeah, no. Um, I was into like those female vocalist ska bands. Um, what were they? Say Ferris, no doubt, and stuff. Yeah. Not no doubt. Not, not no doubt. But, mainstream. Um, I'm sorry. It was like a smaller one. Um, uh, it was a good time. Yeah, it was dance hall crashers. Dance hall crashers. Dance hall crash. Absolutely. I that totally was like that really big for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny because those. It's like those bands did have that moment where it felt like, oh, this stuff's going to become huge, and I guess yeah. no, no doubt did crossover. But yeah. Uh, jumping back to the you know, the present, more future days, uh, when you did join, uh, Le Tigre, what was that kind of like? Cause you know, from the outside as a fan, it felt like the, the world's attention was on you at that point. Like the media mm-hmm. attention was definitely feverish at that point. What did it feel like to kind of go from, you know, not being in a band at all to suddenly being in the band in the center of everything? Oh, going to be honest. It was hard. Um, yeah. I was always like a person, a a shy person, I guess, Mm -hmm. extremely insecure in my own thoughts. Um, And I never was considered like a good looking person. And it was almost like a joke um, to be treated as such when I joined the band. Um, So there was a lot of you know, internal politics going on for me. Like, what is my persona? What is my role? Who am I? (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. What do these people want from me? All this stuff. And, you know, in the most truest of the word punk, uh, we had no idea what we were doing. And we made music that, you know, was political and important to us. And, um, we had a good time doing it and, you know, we were equal parts uh, in a democratic collaboration in which we worked our fucking asses off. Um, and all of that was really true to who I was. So I always like, am so grateful that I took that path with Johanna and Kathleen because it was such a, 
true, real, honest experience. And we were touching everything with our fingertips, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, it felt really beautiful. And and you changed, you know, like how many bands can say they changed the world a little bit or changed Mm -hmm. the music world a little bit. And, and, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and you guys did do that, like in a way that, you know, not very many people could ever do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think at the time when you're in the studio, you're writing stuff for you and, and um, that's kind of the best part about being a musician is like when it translates to the rest of the world or to your community so well. And um, I do, again, I, like I feel very grateful for that too. You know, when you're, you know, I don't know, as an artist, when you're speaking your, your truths, like when your audience comes back to you and says, yes, those are ours too. It's just like this wonderful feeling of, of success, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's funny. I, I was just tweeting yesterday that I think the world has finally caught up to Johanna Fateman in, in the year 2000. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, obviously the things we spoke about in those records, especially the first two, I mean, but definitely uh, This Island as well, were, you know, we had a song about police brutality, you know, Um, in like 2002 or -hmm. something. Um, So I don't know. I I do feel like we were ahead of our time in a lot of ways and, and, uh, created a space that a lot of people needed to dance and be smart at the same time. Yeah. And like, I think very much a punk band in the sense, yeah. you know, and it's a, a band that like never compromised, but yet, you know, was thrust into the mainstream. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. I mean, compromise is a hard word. I think when you, it's confusing to know, do you, how to grow mm-hmm. when you have a bigger audience um, and which part of you they like the best, you know? Uh, so it's hard to understand like how to move forward and, and, and really become a rounder band, um, a more well-rounded band, but you know, without losing sight of your goals. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I mean like, you know, obviously bands evolve and, and things change, but I mean, compromise in the sense of like, there was never like a, a Lincoln park remix or, <laughs> you know, like there was never, it's not like you guys, sorry, you not like as a band, you, you, you know, like ultimately you do sign to the major label, but you know, it seems like it, it, it was, that was like a natural kind of evolution thing. It wasn't like, seems like something that from the get go was being chased. No, never, never. Um, to be honest, the people at universal were so awesome and um punks themselves you know so it's not like we felt like we signed over to the devil you Mm -hmm. know Mm -hmm. it was um it was a a positive experience for us uh for sure Uh, what was it like though being someone who you know like you're making you know art you know film art that's not exactly mainstream and you you said you shunned these bands as soon as they would become mainstream Mm -hmm. to suddenly you know not by your own design but be thrust into the mainstream well it certainly felt okay when you're playing a festival with (laughs) like eighty thousand people and 
you know, the people before and after you have the band of 16 people playing to a click and whatever. And, and you come up there with like three people and a sampler and a guitar and a DVD <laughs> player, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just a new kind of punk. And I think that really we were in the center of that switchover where punk became electronic music that you make at home. Um, you know, like I think, this is a, an argument I think people have of like, is the punk aesthetic necessarily, you know, guitar, bass, drums, vocals, or can the punk aesthetic be shaggy samples and um, someone sitting at home, you know, writing hip hop beats in, in their basement, you mm-hmm. know, while their mom's upstairs cooking dinner. And I think that, you know, that idea is huge right now. Um, the idea you don't need to really have money to make music. It changes what punk means to me a lot. You know, um, people learning how to do things themselves. That's that to me is punk, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, people doing things that aren't classically, that don't classically make sense, um, that are, are, are putting theory aside. So in the, in that sense, I think punk, the, the idea of punk is changing a lot. It's like, Maybe punk rock is still alive in a certain way, but punk itself isn't inherently inherently rock to me. Yeah, yeah no, and I think in the very beginning it wasn't either. Like you look at bands like the Screamers or Throbbing Gristle, or totally, or, and it, it's 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 a, almost like a it got codified at a certain point, and totally that was disrupted, like at the time of you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. You know, and also like, you know, and Fat Tony, someone you've collaborated with, yeah. uh, a guest who was on the show like two weeks ago um, yeah. as well, but like someone else that came from punk rock. So, mm-hmm. you know, like the, you know, here's different artists making things that are radically different from the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, but mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. is this sort of, you know, like, yeah, like you said, it's the DIY. It's the, the, you do this yourself. You produce your own culture. Totally. Totally. Did you ever do a zine yourself? Mm, no, actually. I was part of zines. You know, people have asked me to contribute certain things for, like, more concept-driven zines, but I never made one myself, no. Were you, no. like, as you mentioned earlier, we were t- way back when we started talking about this conversation, you mentioned that you did have an interest in zines at, yeah. at a point. It, once again, like, that's, you know, another art form that has obviously changed. Blogs and, and things like that have taken the place of zines in a, in a lot of ways. But, you know, much like film, you said, it is something that makes a comeback. Is that something you'd ever want to do? Would would be expand into that art form or try that art form out? Yeah, actually. Um, I was talking recently about doing something like that. Um, my friend just started this kind of personals ad app for queer people and uh, she made the zine with personals on it and like everyone she had this opening and everyone was reading it you know yeah and I was just like wow this is so awesome to have this tangible thing that people want to look at and um I did have a thought about that you know and I've been kind of making some artist books um recently and just thinking about like the idea of of something that can be passed around and traded and kind of sent through the world, um, in other ways than the mail. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 
Yeah. I, and it's also, it's just like, you know, that's like you said, like seeing that person change those film loops the other mm. night, it's like yeah. that return to tangible. Like it, there's almost like a appreciation for it again. Well, for sure. And, you know, I'm working with a band right now and my goal is to not use a computer. Um, and that would be like the first time that I've ever done that, um, which is sad to say, but <laughs> I mean, not sad, but it's just like, you know, my real music beginnings with a band started with La Tigra and we were creating content with a computer and a, you know, a track. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like a, a, a big shift for me to make sure that I'm touching things and, uh, being around people while I'm doing it instead of just being alone. What's the new project? It has no name. Okay. Um, but the, it's myself and uh, Caitlin frame who is in a project called frame here in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael O'Neill from my band men. Um, uh, and Roddy bottom. That's, so what, what's the, uh, what's the sound like, or have you kind of, are you still kind of figuring it all out at this point? Um, well, it's interesting. Um, Roddy was in faith no more. Um, so he has like a really awesome <clears throat> edge to him mm-hmm. and, um, really he's playing keys and I just like love, he basically does it everything and anything. Um, but the goal is to kind of, you know, our first song we played at a, um, screening of an experimental film actually, um, as things go full circle. Yeah. Soundtracks Um, again. Yeah. And, um, our song was called, um, it's called pretty shitty. Yeah. And, um, the lyrics are like, I've got a feeling that you're feeling pretty shitty tonight. And, um, it's kind of just about like the, you know, apathy and catharsis that we're going through as a culture right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, you know, again, like content is really what drives me and it only comes up when things are shitty. (laughs) So, um, it's been great, a great writing exercise for me to, um, not only write with these other people in the room, but to be able to write again about politics. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's it, like you said. It's a it's it's now a time where, you know, like it, it's like we're living in the most, you know, negative punk song from the eighties lyrically. Yes, out. but it's something like you said. Like it's something people involved in punk music and 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 you know marginalized cultures and cultures that have been oppressed and things have known about for years. Right. It's just now it's you know been brought mainstream. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel like it's only the beginning. I feel excited for people to talk about what's happening again. Um, there was a 20 year break of like, even acknowledging that the rest of the world exists outside of a love affair in pop music. Um, so I thank Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar and, um, all the amazing, you know, Mickey Blanco bottoms, like people that are going outside of that. Just because you said you were a shy person, what was it like playing live for the first time? Cause it is such a, you know, like a bearing experience. Oh, well, that's a good story. 
Um, my first live show in La Tigra where I played the, a full show, mm. I wasn't just a guest, was in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, strangely, not on purpose. <laughs> um, first night of our tour in Cleveland at the old grog shop. Um, where I had gone as a child to see all these bands I looked up to my entire life. Um, My whole entire family was there. It was (laughs) sold out and packed and crazy. And it was, I don't, I blacked out. (laughs) I couldn't couldn't tell you anything about what happened. Um, Strangely, the next night was in St. Louis and I had extremely terrible stage fright and had to leave the stage because I thought I was going to faint. Really? Um, yes. And so for the first, the, the cons- next, you know, five shows, I was unsure if I could actually be in the band mm-hmm. and it took a lot of soul searching. And I one I had a hard conversation with myself in Utah Um in a bathroom stall and I forced myself to say you are the coolest person in the world and I told myself like you can do this you're the coolest person in the world and I walked out and with that walk I walked for the next 15 years (laughs) that's amazing because you are an incredible performer Um, like you know I've seen you a couple a few different projects at this point and, you know, it's just, but it is such a, it's such a hard thing to do, especially for someone that didn't have, you know, those awkward high school band experiences with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it was all fake. <laughs> 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 no, I, I mean, I do have to say I'm coming to terms with like what I, what I, you know, is not me. You know, mm-hmm. and what is me? And um, I do have stage fright, and um, I was able to get through it. But um, you know, that that duality between your persona and yourself is really can be really extreme in the industry. And um, you know, once you get older, it's it's like you it's like two totally separate people. You know. So. Yeah, I was I was thinking that's the other day too because it must be hard for a younger artist now because the persona is not something necessarily that you even create. It's something that's put on you by people and, and, and media almost. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how, and now you, it doesn't seem like you can ever take it off. Like you're, you've got to be on social media as that persona all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I've been really backing away from social media, um, in terms of like politics and my personal life, um, I, because, you know, the Tigra and men were so political and radically. So, um, I think there was an expectation to like be a spokesperson for that community. And I think that's awesome. And I should, and I am, but I also have such a fear of fucking up that, um, and, and everybody hating me mm-hmm. and doing a bad job. And so I get extremely triggered when, when I do something wrong and, um, I have to really be aware of that and work on it, but also, you know, 
be realistic about what I can take and what is going to like send me into a, a snowball, you know? Yeah. So I, I try to really be, have self-care around that stuff and try to do things that make me feel good. Um, I teach now um, in the music department at NYU, and it's such a pleasure to be kind of like sharing this kind of information with students who are just starting their journey. And um, it's been really an awesome shift for me, to be honest. That's awesome because it seems like, you know, when you, as you say, when you went to college, it was such a huge shift for you that to now be the person that can do that for another generation of kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's really awesome to just experience how willing they are to, to talk about politics and to, you know, be experimental with their work and they want to be pop stars, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's really, it's really exciting. Well, that's, that was one thing, you know, that has that changed now or like kids as, you know, cause it felt like at different times, like you had to be in a click, you had to kind of like, not even you had to, you just would wind up clicking up with people like, you know, be the, the you know, like you said, the freaks or, you know, are, are kids like that now? Or is it, is it changed in that way? I, th- I feel like it's changed, um, a lot. I think my my department is pretty small. There's only like 60 students to a class. So everybody knows each other and there are kind of like little cliques, but I think I don't know, I've been really blessed to have students that really like each other in class. Like everyone seems to get along and um everyone's a freak <laughs> um, <laughs> compared to when I was a kid. Um, but maybe that was just Ohio. Um, you know, it's just like everyone has their little thing that they do. That's cool. And um, some of their music is more mainstream than others. Um, but, you know, their ability to experiment is there. I just think, you know, there's definitely, you know, to me, the biggest difficulty is trying to help them understand that pop music doesn't necessarily have to sound like Haley Kiyoko. Haley Kiyoko. It can sound like Kendrick Lamar and mm-hmm. become pop because it's so great and important. So early um, Tigra. Exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, you know yeah. like not to put you in an awkward, to awkwardly interrupt you with that, but just yeah. is very much what kind of happened with, with your band. Yeah, and um, I think that that's, like, it's really incredible that that can happen, Mm -hmm. so. Um, Well, I've kept you for a very long time, J.D. Oh, stuff. And I know you have to get ready for uh, your residency, but one day in the future, would you come back for a part two at some point? Of course, of course. Uh, This has been a huge thrill for me. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you, J.D., for coming on the show. And you heard it right there. J.D. will be back for part two in the future. Um, You know, we can go a little bit longer next time and and talk more. That'll be coming up in the future. You know, all these part twos will happen eventually. You know, we've got a a long period of time, you know, before we have to, uh, you know, end the show. Like, I'm I'm never planning on ending this thing, so it's open-ended. So don't worry. People, I hear people complain sometimes, like, oh, he never gets to the part twos. He never gets to the part twos. They do show up, you know. It takes some time. They do show up. And I promise, JD is someone I really want to have back on this show. So that is a part two I will work on. I, I will work on it. 
Um, speaking of working on stuff, I've been working on a, a bit of a special event coming up in conjunction with 77 Montreal. 77 Montreal is an amazing festival that's going to be going down on July 27th in Montreal uh, at the, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the park. Uh, Parc Jean Drapeau in Montreal. And uh, this is the uh, second year they've been doing this festival. It features everyone from like suicidal tendencies, the, the uh, interrupters, anti flag, the Rosillos, Sick of It All, DOA, Satanic Surfers, L7, Planet Smashers, Jeff Rosenstock, No Policy. There's going to be a, a freaking No Policy reunion. And it also features our good, good friends in Rise Against, you heard last week, Zach Blair, and AFI. Davey Havoc from AFI is one of my my heroes, one of my good friends, someone that has been on this show not once, not twice, but as of today, he joins the Three Times Club. Uh, he is coming back on the show to kind of you know talk a little bit about What's going down in Montreal and to also, uh, yeah, just catch up and, 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 and shoot the shit, as we like to say. And, of course, join the three-time club on Turnetta Punk, which is a, a high honor, you know. Like, this is a guy who's won Moon Men, and now, though, he can say he's a taupe three-timer. That's what I think it should be called. The taupe, that's not really that catchy. Uh, anyway, so that is going down in Montreal on July 27th, uh, 77 Montreal Festival, but... The night before, I will be doing a live Turned Out a Punk at Les Ministres, uh, Thursday, July 26th. Doors are going to be at 7 p.m. You can get your tickets in advance. As announced last week, my co-host will be Zach Blair. Uh, there's going to be other guest announcements coming next week as well. Uh, some A lot of great ones. A lot of really good ones. I'm not saying Davey Havoc is going to be one of them, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying... I'm not saying because he has shown up today for his third time, but maybe he will join the even more elite four-time club potentially on July 26th. But I've blabbed enough. If you're in Montreal or you're planning a road trip, I will see you at 77 Montreal Festival. And I'll see you the night before at the Turned Out of Punk pre-77 Montreal kickoff jam fest party. That's also not as catchy as I thought it would be in my head. So here is Davey Havoc on Turned Out a Punk. Oh yeah, and I, I guess I kind of buried the lead with this one. Next week on the show, Dwid from Integrity, one of my biggest influences and I think uh, one of the people I've most wanted to have on this show over the years, and it's finally happened next week on the show. It's it's a good one. It's an awesome one. Uh, and uh, that's it. Go out there and make your own culture, and I will see you next week. Davey, thank you for coming on the show, my friend. Damien, it is my pleasure. Well, I didn't tell you this off air, but this also welcomes you to the very elite three club of Turned Out a Punk. Yes. It's Happy just... to be here. Honored honored to be in the three. Well, last time we attempted to do a three club episode, I we accidentally failed. burnt my computer on a candle on your countertop and showed <laughs> you wrestling videos instead of podcasting. Completely, completely hijacked by your passions. <laughs> yes. We just hung out. 
It was a good time. I enjoyed it, but we've made it. We've made it to three. Let's see if I can speak for under three hours this time. <laughs> well, this is that's also Michael. No, this will be a quick, short one because we're gonna okay. we're gonna be seeing each other very shortly. So we don't and have very a, much like, looking. Yeah, looking forward to it. We are going to be in uh, Montreal together. Yeah, exactly. And this is a uh, like back in the day when you guys first came. Did you guys mm-hmm. play Montreal on, on any of those early tours? Absolutely. Yeah, we. Okay, so AFI came to Canada in 95. That was our first Canadian tour, and it was us and the Swinging Utters. And uh, I think we played everywhere. That came Most, That came to Toronto? Absolutely. We abs- I mean, it must have. I remember you guys it, yes. playing. I thought you guys played with Rancid for the first time when you guys played Toronto. Prior to doing... Wow. Wait, am I? Gosh, you may you you may be right. Those two tours were very close to each other, but I believe. Hmm. I believe this is what I can tell you. Okay. <laughs> this is, okay. This is what I know. I know. I know. We did tour with Rancid in Canada and a little bit in and out of the northern United States. Um, whatever year that was, that was uh, ninety five. Uh, right. 94th? Yeah, I feel like that was that was like ninety five. Um, and I know that after that, when we came back and played Canada again, there were lots of people at our shows. Now, I know the Swinging Others and, uh, and AFI did tour Canada as well. And I think it predates that very harrowing winter Rancid tour. We yes. were <laughs> saying goodbye to them every night for what felt like the last time <laughs> we were fearing for our lives. And they were as well because we were in a van uh, through the, the Canadian winter and they were in a safer bus, but I digress. Um, the Utters and AFI did do Canada. The, our first two tours that we ever did as AFI were with the swinging Utters and we booked them ourselves. And, uh, I'm certain we played Montreal. I can't, couldn't tell you where. Um, but I'm, well, I'm almost certain. I'm almost certain that we played every major, major city, across Canada, um, including some very minor ones. Yeah, because I, I definitely remember – well, I guess that would have been where the DBS connection would have come from too, right? On those Which tours. was on the West Coast, correct? Yeah. Yeah, they put on our shows. Okay, okay, yeah, because you guys they were, were on our, a, a I, I think I think so. Like DBS, like um, they if they didn't put on our shows, it was – was her name Mar- – Marzy? Yes. Marnie? Yes. Forgive. It was Marzy, right? Marzy, who ran Neffer Records back then. Oh, you just said it earlier. Okay. Yeah. So she she ran their record label. I think yeah, she was the one. I, I'm pretty sure that it's, it's Marzy that ran Neffer. I'm trying to remember now myself, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, that would make sense that she was doing the shows. And you guys were she on the was, comp too that they uh, did. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. She was integral to getting us in and out of Canada. She was so great. Like she and I think I think it was the swinging others that knew her first, um, but she in those early years would really take care of us and make sure that we could get into and out of the country, which was always very difficult and always a huge orchestration of <laughs> yes. going back and cross and then coming and kicked out and then back in and then trunks and then like four t-shirts that are contraband and you know, that sort of back and forth until we finally were in whatever basement or skate shop or or hall that we were in and playing. And um, that's where her, I think she connected us to the, the DBS guys who uh, you and Formula all went on to uh, 
great musical achievements, or many of them did, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Actually, Andy, um, Andy, I believe Dixon, the guitar player, is now a really accomplished visual artist, and his paintings go for buckets of money. <laughs> like, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. He's Good become, for him. Yeah, and, he, and he's done art for like a lot of bands over the years as well, but as like a fine artist, I guess his stuff is now – very wow. sought after. My brother just uh, forwarded me an article that I still haven't had a chance to actually read yet, but it was just about kind of the success he's had in the art world. And I'm going to say this shockingly: I don't think they mentioned DBS. I don't. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I Maybe it's just be, it's too exhausting to just read and mention it over and over. Yeah, and everyone knows. You know, in every like, yeah. every piece about him. You know, it's like it's you could known. have. You could have that shirt that just says all their names in the same way you do with a Beatles shirt, and everyone would just know. It, right. Everyone just knows it's you're talking about DBS. It's like you don't have to mention Blondie every time you talk to Deborah Harry. We know. <laughs> it's funny because like I'm cro- I'm about to cross the border with the family. Like we're going on a road trip right now to uh, see baseball being played, which is shockingly not my choice of a vacation, but the kids want it. Nor so. mine. Yeah, exactly. Nor mine. That's why I Nor felt like I. I was in a... Whose children are these, Damien? Yeah. Well, my wife is very excited, so I think that I can explain Wonderful. at least that side of it. But uh, Wonderful. I, but I, have, I, cool. I have much respect in my in my late life for the uh, for the athletes having, um, having become friends with some of them and going to the athletic events to support them and seeing the the dedication, the um, immersion, as you, I'm sure, see with um, your wrestlers, that it's it's really a, it's 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 really a difficult difficult lifestyle, and I understand uh, I understand how that could um, you know be so fulfilling. Yeah, definitely. I just I just can't understand seeing. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Seeing it. <laughs> um, but it's funny, like crossing the border as like, you know, in, you know, where you're not in the band civilian style right. is, is equally as terrifying and nerve wracking for me because of all those years doing it in a band. So like, yeah. I'm, I think I'm like, I'm trying not to put this on my children right now, but oh. it's, it's terrifying every time you cross that border. Absolutely. Then it's Pavlovian, as you said, for us. It was, yes. We've, we've learned to fear that that event before we make it beaten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. We make it threatened with mag lights because we have nail polish on. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think uh, it is a it is something that, you know, hopefully when I'm with my kids in the van, you know, and there's no boxes of merch. One time the border guard forced us to destroy an entire box of sweatshirts like by, oh, yeah. by hand uh, <laughs> like trying to tear these things apart in a dumpster uh, uh, <laughs> yeah it was a it was a weird experience but anyway uh, enough about these terrifying triggering things called borders yes um, okay. I did you you brought up that word that unfortunately does trigger a whole bunch of verbal diarrhea for me and that is professional wrestling <laughs> I'm like, what word did I say? <laughs> I said two. One of them was wrestling. <laughs> yeah, like I, I don't. There's, there's a very uh, slim chance of you ever saying cannabis on this podcast. So I think wrestling is the one that you might stumble <laughs> into by accident. It's, it's yes. That would that's far more close. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, especially because I don't think we've ever addressed this, 
but you have uh, three illegitimate children in wrestling running around with your last name. Uh, I'm going to need to see blood tests. Well, well I don't know. If we... <laughs> <laughs> Please talk to my lawyer. No, I think age-wise, don't worry. We, we rule that out completely. Great. It's not, not possible. But that being said, there are now three wrestlers running around in tribute to you with the last name Havoc. That is that is wild. It's what's not only a wild, unforeseen, unexpected honor, but um, there are. How do they distinguish? Is that that seems being that they're doing the same thing? If there's three havocs, isn't that wouldn't it make more sense just to be for there to be one? Doesn't well, it get? Isn't there confusion in the marketplace? No, because I think they they occupy three very different spaces in wrestling. Two of them are deathmatch wrestlers, and and you know, okay, but, and you but, you. Uh, you taught me of the deathmatch. <laughs> I've explained the deathmatch to you before. You explained and, and showed me examples of the deathmatch. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, and then Jessica Havoc, uh, I don't think she does deathmatch wrestling, but they occupy different spaces or different, you know, uh, Jimmy and Danny Havoc live in okay. different countries. So Okay. Okay. You know. So. That's wild, Damien. What's what's the deal? I don't know. Well, I that's what I, I've always kind of like, you know, because, you, you know, obviously – a lot of music out there. A lot of music out there. And AFI is a band that I love to my very, very core. Oh, you know, you. But there's a lot of bands I love that I think wrestlers would also love. But it's just the level of fandom, you know, like CM Punk, you know, coming out to AFI. Like there's just right. tons of wrestlers coming out to AFI. Right. And right. It's, I, you know, it's, it's weird because you don't – maybe it's because you're so physically fit. <laughs> I'll take it. I, I, I was fearing you were going to ask me why I would think, in which case I would say, I can't answer this question at all because I'm ignorant of the culture. Yeah, so I no. just really can't even begin to put forth any sort of theory, but I like that theory. <laughs> I assure you I'm not as nearly physically as fit as any of these people who have taken my name, but um, that would be nice. Well, and also, I think you, you also have an element of stagecraft that mm. – you know, it, it's not – we're not in a genre that's, you know, overwhelmed by that. That's – perhaps that's it as well. They are uh, very theatrical, the wrestlers, as I understand it, and I am emotive. Yeah, well, and, and, and like, you know, once again, that's like a huge influence on me was watching you do that. Was that – because I'm trying to think back at the, the – the first time I saw you at the Rancid show – that mm. wasn't, you know, what you were kind of putting out there. It was when I saw you again, I think it was like, I think DBS even opened in Santa Cruz mm -hmm. and it was like an entire completely different presentation and you were like a god mm. up there on stage. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> what, what, was, what, was that like a conscious thing or that's just something that developed over time? Well, I can't, I don't consciously see, um, being in it and being involved the as I'm doing it I don't see distinctions I don't see the stark distinctions in my um, in what I'm giving and how I'm performing mm -hmm. as I'm doing it over the years aesthetically speaking of course I understand uh, the aesthetic changes as um, that is something that's just very naturally a part of me um, you know I just really have always enjoyed style and presenting myself in a way that I feel comfortable and that I am not bored of. Um, so the aesthetic differences occur that way and any sort of more, more esoteric energy differences that you would see, I think would be more a result of me 
becoming more comfortable with myself as a mm-hmm. performer and um, really being my own self and being able to really put all of my true self out there and shaking off any sort of youthful pretense or uh, youthful perception of what I'm supposed to be or what I want to be rather than just being me. Um, and you know, when you saw me with rancid in 1995, I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and so growing as a human being and growing as a performer, I think I just came into, uh, a, what would then be, if you look at me now and then look at me when I was 15 or 16 or 17, depending on what you see, AFI, a starkly different performer is, uh, not conscious, just a matter of, uh, growth, which Mm -hmm. is natural, you know, in the same way that, I think anybody who's doing the same thing for five years compared to 10 years compared to 15 years to 20 to 25 to almost 30 where we're at, um, you're going to see growth in the, in the way that they, uh, uh, they perform it, whatever it is, especially within the arts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I definitely think, you know, for me, it almost was like when I realized, oh yeah, this is like a this is my profession now. Like it's, it's not right. a matter of just going out there and, you know, hoping for the best. Like I got to put a little bit of effort into it. Yeah. And that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting shift, which occurs for me where it was, it was really it, later that I started to care about being good, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, many, many years later, uh, where as when we began, there was no such thing as good. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered. Yeah. You know, we came out yeah. of punk and hardcore. We couldn't play. We didn't care. It wasn't about that. It wasn't about being good. But then when more and more people start to stand in front of you, you start to think, well, <laughs> why are you here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't really want – because in the beginning, as you know, you're just sucking in front of your friends. Yeah. You know, and they're only there because they love you. They don't like <laughs> what you're doing anyway. Um. And so it just changes. Well, yeah, I think there's a big moment a band has to go through when your friends just stop showing up. And it's like, you're like, okay, well, I guess I can no longer trade on people's goodwill. Yeah. I mean, for me now, I say to all my friends, always for anything that I'm ever doing, and it's very true, I, I love you. And that means you don't have to come to anything I do. (laughs) Yes. Do not feel you have to come see me do whatever it is ever because you've seen it 50 times <laughs> or 200 times. And I would love to have you, but if you would rather just sit home, please sit home. <laughs> but I think, I think like that's part of like loving a band. Like, I think that comes from being a fan of a band is the fact that you want to see them evolve, you know, and like, you know, like seeing you guys or seeing like the Melvins or seeing like every time. It's it's the same band, but there's it's you know like the band's maturing, you know it's 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 yeah. becoming something different, and I think you know there's the bands that are the same thing over and over again. Yes. That has its place too, but it's not necessarily something you're able to grow up with. No, at which which I would think would make it difficult for the artist, and you know I I have always gravitated towards the bands that continue to grow, mm-hmm. like Nick Cave, mm-hmm. like The Cure. Mm-hmm. Um, where 
every record is a new experience and every every performance is a new experience and they just keep getting better and better and wild. <laughs> are, are you in like completely for the cure or are there any cure records you just don't like? Well, there there's some cure records that I'm less familiar with. Yeah. Um than others, but um there weren't any that I disliked. There were uh, obviously some hooked me a little less than others, but I mean that's the case with any band that has <laughs> that 20, records. 20, 25 records. I mean, the same could be the same could be said for Depeche Mode or The Cure or Nick Cave or um, that's it, right? Yeah, but like, <laughs> The Cure. I think that's it's it. like that. I think that's the, the biggest discography out of all of them. And I'm like, there's never a Cure record that I hate. You know, I'm no, like never some that I like more than others and less than others. But it's hard, hard to find one that's like just like oh, this is they they completely did not give me what I signed up for. Right. Right. You know, and they have so many incarnations that they weave in and out of and have always done. So post, you know, as they, you know, if you're looking at three imaginary boys and then faith in 17 seconds and the reverse order, um, and then pornography and, you know, going on into where the pop elements are infused and then, and then disintegration happened and it was unreal. unbelievable that's that's the best record ever (laughs) unbelievable i remember watching that south park episode and i'm like wow even the guys that make south park think this is the best record ever man those are some talented guys i saw them at when the cure played um the cure played the troubadour here uh i don't know it seemed like only a couple years back but now i think about it it was probably 10 15 years back yeah and uh and trey parker and matt stone were we're upstairs hanging, talking to Robert, and I think Book of Mormon had recently happened, or maybe they had released their first musical. Maybe it was just a South Park movie that was a complete musical, and I was just staring at them in awe, thinking how wildly talented they are. Like, wow, you guys can do everything, <laughs> absolutely everything. <laughs> From writing full musical movies to hanging out with Robert Smith. Yeah. Yeah. Pusset did an interview with Robert Smith, I remember reading in Thrasher, too. Mm-hmm. Pusset did? Yeah, Pusset did, like in, way back. Your, your friend Pusset. My friend Pusset. My God, I haven't seen Brian in so many years. So many years. <laughs> it's it's still like one of the, I think the great unreleased records is that AFI uh, Wow. Record. It'll never come out. And It'll I don't never blame come him. out. I do not blame him. <laughs> Although, you know, it's funny. Jade was talking to me the other day, uh, Jade from AFI. And black audio, and he said the force. We were talking. To, we were ta- yes. We were ta- and extremist. Um, no, Jade was never in the force. Oh, he was never in the force. Sorry, no. no. What was Jade's? Uh, 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 Redemption eighty seven. They Redemption eighty seven. Yep. Sorry, sorry. The force. No, all good. Uh, Hunter was in the force. Yes, uh, but we were talking about negative approach, and he said that he listened to uh, the AFI cover, the negative AFI negative approach cover, and I said which one, and he said, oh. Like it was whatever I do, I think he said, and we were trying to figure out what it was on. And then I, he, he had never heard us do "Can't Tell No One," which I believe no one has heard. I believe we did "Can't Tell No One" for that Pusshead seven inch that never came out. Yeah, because you you guys have a song on the Pusshead comp, right? Which is oh, is it that? No, no, that it's not that. It's Fishbowl. It's Fishbowl. Okay, right. Because, yeah, because we then re-recorded and released those songs on Very Proudia um, per 
uh, insistence of one of our ex-members, despite knowing that he that they were supposed to be on the seven inch that was taking a long, long time to come out, <clears throat> and uh, that happened. And then Brian was like, "No, I'm just never going to put it out. Why would I put this out? I have these are release songs." But they're Except, like they're all different I versions. Think, but yeah, they were different versions. Oh, they were crazy. better versions. They were absolutely better versions. Um, and that Brian had, uh, that Puss had had. Forgive me, Brian, if you're listening. I mean, forgive me, Puss had, if you're listening to this. And I'm not supposed to be calling you by that name. <laughs> he would, he would, you know? he would, he, I remember seeing stuff that he would sign Brian, Puss had Schroeder. So I think okay. it, it, secret's out. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> but uh, then he just kind of just didn't put it out, which I get. But I think aside there also those two original versions of those two songs and i think there was i think can't tell no one was on it have you ever heard a recorded version of afi doing can't tell no one no no dude yeah i'm, I'm I, pretty I, sure it exists i gotta i you this seven inch has gotta come out <laughs> this is gotta if Pusset's not gonna do it someone's gotta do it well, it'd be awesome. awesome it'd be awesome if Pusset did it and it'd there was a awesome. fourth song i think Cause he like, I don't think he's doing the label anymore, but this is like, I don't know. Like this is, seems like this is worth putting out. Only to Damien. No, I think, I think <laughs> but it's Damien it, would care. That would be about it. No, I, I think there would be a, a, believe me, believe me. I could, I will buy at least a, a lot of copies of it. Every <laughs> color vinyl variation. So we've got a lot sold just there. Which yeah, that's uh, a lot right there. But uh, there's a, it's amazing when you think about Pusshead's ear, like you guys, uh, Sunny Day Real Estate, yeah. Rock from the Crypt, Kyalesa. Yeah. It's just like so many different genres. He just was like, oh, this band, this band, this band. And it's all bands that kind of went on to be landmark bands and what they were doing. Uh, he was, he had his finger on the pulse, the pus zone, just ahead yeah. of his time, just telling you what was good. Yeah. But I digress. You said Rocket from the Crypt. I was talking about this with someone the other day. I bet you have the answer. Do you still get in free to rock it for the crypt from the crypt if you show up with the tattoo? I don't think so. I think I think uh, I read in an interview that they had to stop. Anth- that. Yes, Anthony Anzaldo agrees with you. He says he's confirming that the answer is no. You are confirming the answer is no, which is yeah. what I expected because it just seems absolutely impossible to do. Well, I I have talked to you for far too long right now because you just reminded <laughs> See, me I- that you are with company. You are with uh, a fellow punk luminary. Yes. You were with Anthony, just put an incredible solo record. He did. I am, wonderful. Everyone should check it out. He has been sitting there very patiently. I really he appreciate is. both of you doing this. Uh, Davey, this is going to be awesome to get to catch up in person. And yes, I'm looking t- forward to it. Talk more about Cure Records and Pusset. Yeah, <laughs> we shall. I look forward to that very much. All right. Thank you so much, buddy. Talk soon.